you feel you feel very alone but it's it's a very kind of it's it's very wild it's probably you know the last one of the last true wildernesses on earth and to stand up at the on the point and again those at best will know what i mean but to stand up at the point in winter and behind you is the familiar friendly cozy lights of station and ahead of you is just this big vast uncaring environment that you know you could fall off the face of the planet and and wouldn't care and i think that the one of the things that probably a lot of us who do expedition medicine or, or like being outside really value is um that feeling of wilderness and that that humbling ability of nature to make you feel small Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast with me, Dr. Fionn Davis. I'm an emergency medicine doctor and expedition doctor. If you're looking for some inspiration, motivation, education, or maybe a little bit of escapism, you're in the right place. Um, maybe you're listening to this whilst going to work. Maybe you're chilling in a hammock on a beach somewhere nice. Maybe you're enjoying the sun in the UK. Uh, wherever you are, kick back, relax, grab yourself a beer, a cup of tea. Maybe don't get a beer if you're driving um, and then enjoy our conversation we've got today with Clara. Welcome to the podcast, Clara. Hello, thank you for having me. So um, a little bit about Clara. So I first um, heard about or kind of discovered Clara um, when I was a keen green budding expedition medic. And you probably don't know this, Clara, but I definitely stalked you for quite a long time before I met you. So I was uh, looking for some inspirational female expedition medics out there to follow as some role models as I was trying to break into expedition medicine. Uh, found your Instagram account and then have been following your incredible journey ever since and uh, fangirling pretty hard. So was so stoked when I got to meet you at the World Extreme Medicine Conference and you were lovely and do meet your heroes, ladies and gentlemen, because Clara was so nice. Um, so yeah, we're gonna talk through a little bit of your career, a little bit of your expeditions, um, including as the British Antarctic Survey doctor in Antarctica. And then we're gonna go on to her new exciting adventures up in the Scottish Highlands. Um, and I think you're currently packing for a trip abroad. Is that right? I, I am definitely packing for a trip abroad. Um, panic packing is probably the best way to describe it with about seven different lists. But yeah, no, I'm packing and I will be leaving for Mongolia on uh, this upcoming Monday, the 26th of June. Awesome. Well, have you got the whole kit spread like laid out on the floor yet, or we're we not quite there yet? I know for for those of those for those of you that do follow me on Instagram, there will be a post about it. It is a picture of kit on the floor. <laughs> you have oh, to I do it. It's wait. important. <laughs> yeah, like, are you even an expedition medic if you don't? Right. Yeah. No. It's it's, it's all part of the. It's. I did. You feel a lot of people. I have have gotten to know me over Instagram. So, you know, kind of, yeah, it, it'll be on, it'll be on the page. It'll be on a website somewhere, but it's mostly, it'll be a picture of my kit. You know what? I actually like really inspect those pictures as well. Cause I'm always zooming in on everybody else's kit and I'm like, Oh, that looks cool. Like, what is that? I need to drop another, you know, X amount of pounds on that. Obviously that's a second. Well, I mean, all kit is essential. And of course, every single time you pick up a new hobby, 
that means just you can buy an entire new set of kit. So that's that's the most important part of new hobbies. More kit. Oh, every time you go on expedition, you come back with a whole list of things that you need because you're like, oh yeah, I like I obviously need this two hundred pound water filter, etc. I have I have three of anyway. those, so yeah. Oh yeah, well I'm gonna buy some more because my recent trip, I was like, yeah, I I need these. I all the Americans had them, and I was like, these are epic. I need some of these. Anyway, so getting back to Clara, I'm gonna do a little um a little bit about Clara so everybody's got some background. Um, so she's mainly worked in emergency medicine. She had one of the clinical fellow jobs in Bangor in Wales, um, but now is sort of transitioning towards GP practice. She's passionate about polar medicine and education, and her travels have previously taken her to Panama, Nepal, Iceland, and Antarctica. She's a mountaineer, she's a climber, and she's also been a team member on many expeditions in the Alps, uh, the Caucasus Mountains in Georgia, and Tian Shen in Kyrgyzstan. And she's currently up in Inverness, where she's just bought a house. Congratulations, tough market. Um, and she's about to go into G GP training, hopefully in the next... Uh, six to 12 months something like that with an interest in rural and remote medicine did i get it all in there yeah you you got you got it all in there i mean all, the only reason i bought the house is mostly for the cat and uh and so that i can have a gear room which is the most important part of house oh yeah i can't wait to see the gear room and um we've already said hello to your cat like pre-podcast recording beautiful little inca right yeah, no, it's, for, again, for those of you that know me from the internet, uh, Inca features heavily. She's usually found uh, supervising building sites, um, monitoring and judging everyone around us, and, of course, uh, making sure that I buy the correct house for her. Um, she does not like Ernie, who also features, but that's the Ernie is the van. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about Ernie later. Um, so to start <laughs> with, do you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself and maybe how you got into expedition medicine? Yeah, so um, I actually I kind of got into expedition in a, a, a weird and wonderful way. I um, at medical school, I went to Imperial College. Uh, initially, was I actually wanted to be? I was a diehard surgeon. I really wanted to do general surgery, and I really enjoyed it. And at the time, I was also um, initially in my university career. I was rowing for Great Britain uh, under twenty threes, um, and in my first year of university, it really hurt my back. Um, and so that kind of ended my rowing career, um, which in hindsight is probably the best thing that happened, but does build a tad of resilience when you kind of have to reinvent yourself at 21. So I, at the time, I had a friend who was a geologist. We went on a three-week trek through the Alps. Um, and if you who know the ski route, the hot route, uh, we did the whole thing. And um, it, I just fell in love with it as a, as a thing. And it, it was... It didn't hurt my back. It didn't hurt anything. And I just, it was just stunning and breathtaking. So I made a total U-turn, uh, did my uh, kind of student selected module in pre-hospital medicine, spent a bunch of years bumming around with London Ambulance and ended up doing my elective in Iceland. And that's kind of how I started to become interested in expedition medicine and more importantly, just kind of life outside the hospital and outside being a doctor because expedition medicine is just so much more than being the doctor. Uh, it's got a lot more to it. Yeah, and I think it's so easy to get pushed into that, being completely career focused, um, you know, medicine's your life, you know, that's all That's all you make your choices for, et cetera. And it's really easy to just forget that life is about so much more than your job. And I think expedition medicine just keeps things in check a little bit, uh, sometimes just reminds you that, you know, 
have fun along the way. It's not all about the career. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that we all face that that point at the end of F2 where you kind of you look at the, you know, the 18 year old version of yourself who had a, fe you know, five and 10 year plan and you go, well, that's not happening. And, uh, and then you throw it all out the window and go do something interesting. So, I mean, for those of you that haven't, that's also a great way to go. There's nothing bad about going straight into training. But for those of you who are in any way unsure, you know, taking that extra time, taking a year out. I've taken like five, so you know, there you go. Yeah, my 10-year plan has gone to shreds, uh, but in the best way. Um, so tell us a little bit about, um, obviously you did you, you did some experience in Iceland. You, I think you went out to Panama with floating doctors as well, didn't you? Um, I did my elective out there as well. Yeah. Um, really, really cool experience, isn't it? Yeah, no, um, yeah, so I did, my, I did my elective in Iceland. So I did my elective mostly in emergency departments. Um, and then I did a once week shift with the Icelandic ambulance service, uh, which is really interesting. And then I did a couple of um, observer ships of their helicopter emergency services. So we never actually kind of, we, I was never on any live missions or I was never intentionally on any live missions. I was on one accidentally. Um, but overall, it was, it was mostly just focusing on pre-hospital medicine and escaping on the weekends to go and hiking as much as I could. But yeah, no, floating doctors is amazing for any of you that are interested in them. Um, there is basically rural general healthcare in, in the various indigenous communities throughout Panama. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of was also involved early on with a company called Exile Medics, who um, are, were around in the early parts of my career and, and got me to places like uh, Nepal and on some of the event races in the UK. And then you graduated to being the Baz doctor in Antarctica, right? After a little stint in Bangor. Yeah, I mean, like, I never quite know how I quite landed that job. But um, it was it was actually, um, I interviewed for it. I'd actually heard someone speak, much like you guys are hearing us speak now. I'd heard someone speak at a conference. I was like, well, I want to do that. Added that to my five-year plan and um, interviewed for it. Didn't think I'd get it first time around, but... Um, you know, found myself six months later starting in Plymouth. Uh, the Basmood job is a very, um, once you commit to it, you're committed to to the whole of it. So you've got six months of training in multi-specialty training, everything from, you know, plastic surgery, nursing care, ENT, dentistry, dive medicine, you know, you name it, we cover it at some point. Um, and it's a fantastic opportunity to learn and I did learn a lot, even even though I was unfortunate enough to be doing that job during COVID. So a lot was shut and a lot was not quite as it should be. But um, it was a real, it, the training in and of itself is actually, it's worth doing the rest of the job just for the training. Um, but then you are away from, you know, it can be anything from six months to, you know, in my case, 20 months. So um, it can be, it's a long, it can be a long stint. That is long. And um, so how long was the training that you did leading up to that? So the training was six months, which I think, I believe is the longest training for the Antarctic winter job in the world. I might be incorrect, but I, I think it's pretty much there. Um, and then, yeah, then you deploy. So there's two, there's three jobs going. There's one on the ship, which is a six to eight months. 
um, if nothing scuppers your plans, which it's an expedition, something always does. Um, then you've got a job in South Georgia, which is in the sub-Antarctic area. Um, it looks a lot like New Zealand and Scotland, just like on, on steroids. Um, it's beautiful, full of wildlife, and uh, it's a very small team, so it's about kind of like 8 to 12 people. Um, and they're there for 13 months to 14 months. And then you've got the Rothera job, uh, which is the main station um, on, you know, on an island just off the continent. This supports flying, diving, boating, um, and uh, has a huge base population uh, in more recent years, has been also supporting the building of a new, a new base structure. So this had quite a lot of construction work there as well. So that brings an entire new raft of uh, medical anxieties for you to worry about late at night. Um, but it's, it's a big fluctuating population. So you go from 23 in winter-ish to um, about 180 in summer. Yeah, I bet you get a little bit of trauma from the construction side of things. And I guess trauma in Antarctica is not ideal. I mean, like, you really hope ne never to get, I mean, like the size of the vehicles, like kind of, there's no trauma involved. It would just be a, you know, kind of, it, it would be, it would not be a less fortunate ending for that person. But so we were very, we were very lucky. We we didn't have any. Actually, the the building guys were probably the safest guys on the station. They're really, really excellent, and they would they are all mostly Scottish. Actually, work up in Scotland a lot of the time. But they must be the only people crazy enough to go want to work in the dark for I don't know how long it is, but for a very long time, the dark and the cold, right? They they basically do that anyway in Scotland, so they fit right so in. It's actually the other way around. Um, they come in summer when it's 24 hours of darkness, which actually we are pretty much experiencing up here in the Highlands. Uh, it doesn't ever get fully dark. Um, it does It does get dark-ish, but it's a twilight. Um, so uh, yeah, no, they actually, they're just doing summer than summer, uh, but our summers are in, in Antarctica are a bit colder than the Scottish summers. Yeah, maybe they just go to get away from the midges then. That's probably more accurate. The only thing that's going to chase you in Antarctica is, is a penguin. So they're not very vicious. Oh, and, and so you've got to ask when anyone's done an Antarctic job, you know, did you get some amazing penguin photos? I got some amazing penguin photos, but probably my best piece of footage slash, you know, media, um, which I think is amazing. It's not hugely artistic, but it is a Weddell seal farting at the camera. Yeah, 100%. Once in a lifetime opportunity, that one. Yeah, I mean, like, penguins eat your heart out, but, like, it, go to South Georgia for that. But, like, for a Weddell seal to just kind of look at you, make direct eye contact, and just let one rip was, that was, that was a magical moment. Especially as I got it on film. <laughs> wow, uh, I can just picture that uh, happening, weirdly. So maybe, yeah, maybe you can send us the video footage or something, and we'll, we'll get that up on, on the website somewhere. That would be epic. Um, okay, so I know you can't really condense you know, such a long time in Antarctica into some, some highlights and lowlights, but I'm going to ask you to try and do it anyway. Um, I think the highlight, and and this is actually to, it, to the people in Antarctica, a very happy midwinter to you all. And midwinter is the highlight of the Antarctic experience. It's the, you know, the, the darkest, it's the winter solstice, the darkest day of the year. It's almost like our Christmas. So we all have a big meal. We celebrate with each other. You've known each other long enough that you kind of feel like a little dysfunctional family. And um, there's a lot of homemade gift giving. And I think that that and the run up to midwinter for me um you know 
it was, you know, really reconnected me with my crafting side, um, really created, made me more creative. Everything is salvaged on the station. So it really makes you think about your waste and, and it kind of just makes you think a little bit more about reusability of things. Um, and also that, you know, that time of year is, is stunning. It, the sun never rises. So it's just this perma twilight and it turns these snow-capped mountains, just this purple color at all the times and the, this, the sky, because there is no sunlight, but there is light, the sky just turns these incredible, just pastel purples and pinks. And you feel, you feel very alone, but it's, it's a very kind of, it's, it's very wild. It's probably, you know, the last, one of the last true wildernesses on earth. And to stand up at the, on the point, and again, those at Bass will know what I mean, but to stand up at the point in winter and behind you is the familiar, friendly, cozy lights of station. And ahead of you is just this big, vast, uncaring environment that, you know, you could fall off the face of the planet and, and it wouldn't care. And I think that the one of the things that probably a lot of us who do expedition medicine or, or like being outside really value is um, that feeling of wilderness and that that humbling ability of nature to make you feel small and really make you kind of remember that, you know, nature itself is uncaring and it's up to you to make your stamp on the world. Um, but kind of nature is just like, and it's going to continue whether you were there or not. And I think that, that that's, that was quite a magical feeling, especially in winter when the station's so empty. Wow. I think you described that so well. I can, I can really get a sense of what it must've been like. And yeah, na nature is completely indifferent, uncaring, and uh, sometimes that perspective in life, you know. So um, that was a little bit, I guess that was, a, that sounds like a real highlight for you. Uh, what about maybe yeah. some of the tough times, the, the difficult moments? It's a lot of time on your own, a lot of time in a confined space with a small group of people. How did, how did you sort of, yeah, how did you find that? I think the the thing that surprised me the most, I mean, there, there's obviously, you know, you touched on a couple of things that, would, that are challenging. Um, and of course you get, you know, interpersonal dynamics, all this kind of stuff. But actually the, the thing that I think caught me off guard as a doctor was how clinically lonely I felt. Um, I, you know, I didn't have anyone, you, you underestimate the value of bouncing your ideas off people. And I'm, I'm sure that actually the Highland or rural general practitioners will kind of know this feeling but you know to be clinically alone and yes of course you've got your seniors back in Plymouth you've got your top cover um, but you know there's no one there in the office to talk to and you don't you don't have a team your team is you and you know that I think surprised me how much I missed being a doctor in a team I'll bite a small team but I, I really did miss it and um I actually remember, you know, calling calling my boss and and being kind of like, I just really miss being a doctor. And actually, that was quite a reassure. It was a reassuring thing to miss, um, because a lot of people sometimes go on expedition, they realize they don't miss being a doctor, and then they come back and aren't one anymore. But I think that was the thing that surprised me the most: how difficult I found it being alone clinically. Um, and how much I really value having a team around me. And, and I think that that was one of the reasons I returned to Bangor um, was because it's such a good team and I missed that team. And to be amongst friends and, and clinical friends again, who you can, you know, cause medicine is a different language who you can speak medicine to. Um, 
And it's one of the things I'm really looking forward to about this upcoming trip to Mongolia is that I'm not the only doctor. There's there's a couple of us on the trip and, and it's just it just makes you and I think that I probably I would be hard pressed to do a long de- deployment or a long trip without another doctor, actually, in fact. because um, I think I really value that team that team mentality and, and two heads are always better than one. Yeah, like healthcare is a special special breed of person and like you said we have our own language and we are very happy talking about bodily functions and all sorts of bodily fluids whilst eating our lunch and you know we i think we are the worst people to go out to dinner with you know everyone always knows you go out to dinner with like a load of healthcare people there's going to be a lot of shop talk and that's because we 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 like it actually we actually quite like our jobs we find them really interesting and we like chatting about all the horrible things that happen at work they're actually pretty funny and we're actually pretty privileged to pretty privileged to be able to see well, and we think talk about with each other they're, they're not as funny as we think they are we think they're hilarious most people are just slightly grossed out by it horrified yeah sometimes horrified. you don't it's because like, quite right yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, you don't pitch that dinner story quite right, and all the, you think you've just told, you've just dropped the punchline, and everybody's staring back at you like that is awful. <laughs> you're like, yeah. are you a anyway. And you're no, no, no. This was a joke. This is funny to me, and they're just like, no, we're concerned. Yeah, you miss having that banter and that that camaraderie with people. I can definitely see how that would get hard to be on your own in that in that kind of yeah. circumstance. Yeah. We're gonna de- we're definitely gonna dive into Mongolia a little bit um, a bit l- later on because that sounds like a really fascinating trip too. Um, so then you came back to Bangor, um, some great clinical fellow jobs in expedition medicine in Bangor um, that I'm aware of, and it's yeah a great a great ED team. Um, so what uh, what sort of happened then when you got back? So I actually, um, I elected not to go straight back into clinical practice. And um, I I actually thought about this a lot when I was, because I sailed home on the Sir David Attenborough, which, which actually was quite a nice re-entry, nice and slow re-entry. I remembered what sun was and trees and people and other people I didn't know. Um, but I think kind of one of the things I really, really realized was that um, I had left a lot of people behind. and they had gone through an experience I will never understand. I'll never understand being a healthcare worker in COVID. I mean, I, I was there in 2020, but you know, not really. Um, and they'd gone through this big experience that I hadn't really ever been able to empathize with. And so I recognized that I needed to give my time back to my friends and my family. Um, so I spent the first real month or two just, just making sure that I was still friends with everyone. Um, cause you know, one thing about expedition medicine, as I'm sure all of us have known at some point is that, you know, you're sucked into that tiny bubble and it is your life and it is your simple life and you don't really have room for other people in that sometimes. And especially if you go away for two years, you come back, you got to make sure that the people you left behind are still there. Um, so I, yeah, I spent a lot of time trying to make friends, uh, still felt that I was a value to them um, and my family too. Um, and then I actually, I, I embarked on my own personal project. I spent my Antarctic winter millions. Uh, it's not millions, by the way, uh, for those of us that are listening and they're shaking their heads. It's really nice. It's just a bit of money that we don't normally have. Um, 
And I actually, I renovated a house that I, I'm very privileged to own. And I, I, I did a lot of DIY. I applied a lot of skills I learned down south. And I was my own boss for three months. Um, but most importantly, I got to take out any frustration I may have had on, you know, partition walls and, uh, and my garden. So I think that, you know, for any of you that do do long deployments or any of you that do do long stints, um, be mindful of how you come back. You know, probably don't, sh don't, don't do a locum shift the week you come home. Realize you'll need to decompress. Realize that you'll need to talk to your family and rem remind them that you exist. Remind that your friends, that you still care about them and like them. And then go do something for yourself that isn't medicine because you, you will have been on call and not really realize how stressful that was until you stop. Um, and I think that it's really important to just, however long that takes, and you know, kind of, just just to just to take a little while. So I took about three four months, and then I went back to clinical practice. As you said, the very lovely and very welcoming and very friendly emergency department in North Wales. I think that is so um, important to be able to take that time to reassimilate, to reconnect with people. Um, and and for me personally, sometimes expeditions can feel a little bit self indulgent. Um, you know, I'm going off and I'm doing, I'm having a great time. I'm doing what I want to do, uh, you know, in these amazing environments, amazing experiences. And I'm relying heavily on my family to look after my dog and my partner in order to look after the house. And, you know, it can feel a little bit self-indulgent. Um, and so, yeah, it's really important to recognize, recognize that and those people that, that enable you to go and do this. Yeah, I think the more you touched on, you know, people who are important in your lives, I think the thing that, you know, was a blessing for the Basmu job is that I didn't, you know, I had my cat, which I was very fortunate. My One of my best friends looked after for me. Um, but, um, you know, I didn't have, I was, I was single. I was, you know, in my early, in my late twenties, I didn't own a house. I lived out of the back of my van, um, you know, there was no, I had no ties. And I think kind of, that's one of the things actually packing tonight um i have a huge amount of anxiety i spent an hour at the pet store guilt buying my cat a new scratching post like, is, does she need one absolutely not she's a princess she has many but you know i think as we have more attachments and as we have you know i'm, I'm you know like my i'm leaving my partner for you know a essentially over a month um, and just told him to just deal with communicating with me by satellite phone, which, you know, isn't what normal girlfriends do. So I think that as, as we get more ties, it is more, yeah, especially that giving back to people, like kind of, you, you do, it is self-indulgent. Of course it is. It's, but it's really fun and it makes us really happy. And I think the people that value our happiness understand that, you know, we will come back to you. We, and we will, because we need to come back to you and we need you to come back to us and we need to be able to come back to you and come back to our homes and our bases. But allowing us and letting us and, and, and supporting us doing weird and wonderful stuff, especially as a woman, which, you know, kind of, it seems that guys get a slightly easier ride, but, you know, that especially as a girl, having your partner just be like, yeah, you can, you can, you can leave for ages. You'll be fine. It'll be great. I'm super excited. Send me a postcard. Um, is really worth it. So to all the partners out there that are listening, um, thanks for putting up with us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They're kind of the unspoken heroes of anyone who goes on expedition. Um, yeah, they do.
panic three o'clock in the morning. I don't have enough water sterilization tablets or I need to go to go outdoors for the 10th time because I forgot to buy a hat. And they're just like, okay, let's just get in the car. Oh yeah, we were in the middle of buying a house when I went to the Yukon with no signal and couldn't do any of the admin or any of that that goes along with that. I was like, yeah, thanks, thanks for that. Goodbye, bye, off I go. Yeah, it was, you know. It's it's a thing. Thank thank you so much for all the the understanding partners out there who uh, who put up with with all this crap. I think the other thing you said there is my personality is very much like oh well I'm coming back from a trip and so I'm gonna just immediately dive into medicine because I've missed it so much and like I want to get back into it and you know get right back on that horse like don't feel nervous about it just you know I'm gonna book all these shifts and I'm gonna make myself really busy that would be my definite approach and I think it's quite hard actually to be a little bit more measured sometimes and just say right well actually I think I need a little bit of time here to just well get back to it's reality. easy to go it's super easy to go be busy because then you don't have to think about it. And then you don't have, it's, it's, you know, kind of, especially people who do expedition medicine, like, let's be honest, we're all slightly on the neurodivergent spectrum. Uh, we have attention issues. We like to be, have multiple different stimuli and we, we get bored. Um, and that's why we need to constantly travel and, or be outside or be somewhere interesting. Um, and I think it is really hard for that personality type to stop um and and just and just reflect but i think actually you know however you reflect um you know for me i i journal i think one of the funnest most fun things about my house and unpacking my house was unpacking uh two shelves worth of personal journals dating back to when i was 14 um i had a lot of different problems then it was mostly just like so and so is is a meanie and i have a crush on john and you're just like okay whatever great but i think you know however you reflect whether it's looking through your photographs whether it's you know taking a walk long walk whether it's just not doing anything whether it's actually unpacking your bag because um you know all of those amongst you how many of you unpack your bag the night you get back or how many of you sit there and look at it and think i'm gonna unpack it later because actually it sounds awful and it's a weird and very obvious metaphor but like you know you haven't unpacked your bag and you haven't unpacked your trip. And that's, you know, that's not just a physical thing. That's a mental thing. And I think that, you know, if you've been away for a week, take 10% of the time you were away and just dedicate it to being back. Um, you know, it, it, I was away for 20 months. I took, you know, three months to reset myself and, um, it did me a world of good. And it also meant that when I re did return to medicine, I was so excited. I was just over the moon to be a doctor again. And I was like, I was, I'd taken all my courses and I'd read all the books and I was like, ah, I get to go put on a stethoscope and scrubs and B and A and E and it's gonna be great. And it was. And I think that if I'd gone back too soon, I would have been really tired and it would have been really yeah. hard. You bring back that enthusiasm for work because you're like, yes, I love my job. I'm so lucky to do this, etc. Yeah, and, and everyone else, and I, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but and, and everyone else who's kind of like been there on full time, it's just like, oh, for God's sakes, just piss off back to wherever you were. Um, so yeah, no, I think I kind you of- like bounce um, into the department. And you bounce like, in, you're guys, all happy, and they're like, and they're all just like, yeah. we did COVID and yeah. you left. And you're like, whoops. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm back now. <laughs> um, 
So, um, talk to me about your uh, love affair with grass when you came back. Uh, so, yeah, for those of you that don't really realize, um, I was actually, there's a really, I can't remember what the book is, but there's a, there's a theory about mental health. And the theory is that you need greens and blues in your life in order to feel calm and it centers you. Um, and I will, I'll text Fionn and she can, she can have the link for the book and in, in her bio somewhere, but um, it's, it's in this, it's in this, I think it's called, it's actually a book called Wintering. And it's about things that winter, things that hibernate, how we go through wintering phases of our lives. And a short line, short, a short, long story short, uh, I didn't see grass for 20 months. And um, when I got back home to, we, you know, we, we docked in Harwich in Suffolk. And then I went immediately straight from that into my parents' car and driven to their house, uh, which is basically greenery with a june sun and so i got like i went from seeing nothing but flat ocean to green and blue and it was so vivid and it was so beautiful um and i hadn't seen grass for a while that like i got out of the car didn't unpack didn't see my friends didn't see my family went straight to the lawn stuck my face in it inhaled deeply and cried for 10 minutes and i think my friends were just kind of like is she okay and um my mom was like, no, probably not. But she also hasn't seen grass in a while. And, and, and that's kind of where I was at for the rest of the day. I, you know, I, having got off the ship, I was just kind of in a stupor, really, um, at how green the world was. I was just like, where has this come from? Like, and, and Antarctica has lots of colors, too. But it paints with a color palette. It paints with a cold color palette. You know, the blues, the purples, the, the deep, deep blacks and, and navies. And, and, you know, you get back to the United Kingdom and you realize just how green it is. And it's just like, it's just in the sense of, of the smell of the grass and just hits you in the face. It's almost overwhelming, um, almost as overwhelming as the decision fatigue I got when I first went into a Tesso's Extra. And, oh my God, I had to walk straight out. But, you know, kind of the grass and, and seeing nature again, and also seeing, um, we saw this in Falkland, in the Falklands, my marine biologist, Ryan Matthews and I, um, were absolutely horrified that there was a house over there with people in it, with shoes outside, who we didn't know. And we would never know. And that was terrifying to us. And we were just like, oh my God what are strangers and then we saw a child and then that was us done for the whole day we were just we were like our minds have been blown um so it is it is incredible the things you miss when you leave normality i think for me it was kind of um yeah i went to a supermarket and i was just like there are so many different types of things that you can milk now you know that's a thing that didn't that wasn't there when i left in 2020 Oh yeah, yeah. The dairy section's really exploded. There's a lot of different choices there now. And what about how did you find yeah. trying to explain what you were processing and what you were going through to people around you who haven't been through the same experience as you? Um, so it's a bit difficult, actually. With uh, with love to the people who are close to me in my life, um, their attention span for Antarctica, and we took bets on how long this actually would be. People's attention span for Antarctica was about two minutes. 
Um, and obviously you guys are really interested because you, you want to do it as a job or you think it's, it's an, it is an amazing experience, but honestly, my family were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were away for two years, hug a penguin, whatever. More importantly, like, we just want you here now. And I think a lot of the time people wanted that 20 months condensed into a couple sentences. They, they think you've been on a holiday and you know, this is again, quite difficult for my parents to wrap their heads around. And some of my friends, like when we go on expeditions, it's a job. We're at work. It's really cool. And we make great pictures and it looks really fun. But remember, social media is percent BS. And of course, it's not fun all the time. And of course, you know, like my day spent counting paracetamols into the formulary there were 940, by the way, um, was boring as hell. Um, but that's the part you don't see. You don't see the last minute, you know, calling all your friends to try and get a suture pack because SP services are out of stock. You don't see the midnight cramming of kit lists. You don't see, you know, the anxiety that we go through when we're thinking, looking at the risk assessment going, oh my God, I really don't want to have to deal with a head trauma in the middle of nowhere. That would really suck. And all that really your friends see when you come back is she took a video of a seal farting. It is the best thing since sliced bread. And it is, but that's only a small part of it. And I think that that's, that's hard to communicate. And I actually don't think for those of you who have a lot of friends who do not do expedition medicine, and this isn't to tell you to totally give up, but don't be disheartened when they don't care. Because they will think it's really cool for about two minutes. Then they're over it. Because they don't care. It's not their passion. Um, and that is fine. It's just that our hobby and our career passion is really intense. And not that others aren't intense. But it is an intense experience. And that intensity doesn't always translate well back into the real world. But it does between. Friends. So make friends who are expedition doctors. I think definitely Fionn and I have had this chat where, you know, we've had loads of chats about how we feel coming back, how we feel about expeditions, how we feel awful that we're not on one all the time. I mean, you know, kind of find your friends and find the friends that get it because a lot of your, your, your friends who don't do expedition medicine won't. And that's okay, but they won't. Yeah, totally. I've, I've had the Oh, so how was your holiday? And it's like, it wasn't a holiday. It, it was, it was work. I, I had to do stuff like, yeah, there was mountains and it was great. And, you know, but yeah, people don't understand it. And um, yeah, it can be hard to get people to understand why you do it and why you use your annual leave or why you do these things and you often don't get paid for them or, you know, people don't get that. It's, it's, just can't explain it can you to, to people who kind of don't are not into the same thing and I think that's um it's partially why uh and this is this is a bit of a shameless plug here but like things like WEM things like the conference uh things like going on courses or listening to podcasts like this etc you know it's really good because you hear that there's a whole community of people out there that are into the same weird stuff that you are <laughs> Um, and that you're not the only one. Uh, and, and it's cool to go and hear about everybody's experiences. It's dangerous too, because then you're like, oh God, I've got to go and do all these things too. This sounds amazing. There's so much out there. Um, but yeah, it's a really nice community of people to, to go and share experiences with. Yeah. And, so, and also, maybe... you know, kind of 
they can ground you about the expedition FOMO because they can remind you that actually they have spent their annual leave doing this really cool thing, but actually their day-to-day is like a really busy emergency department in the middle of like a city. And that, and that that's like, you're like, yeah, this is great. I have a picture on Instagram of, you know, like my cat in the field. But, you know, I also just, you know, spent my entire day doing palliative care and told like 10 people that they were dying. So like, there's also like kind of the work side, which I think it's, it's nice to have pals like us. So, you know, um, we look forward to hearing from you in whatever capacity and meeting you at some point. Yeah, and like genuine, genuine people, not like, you know, you were saying about social media, Instagram, all of this. It is it is all the rosy stuff. It's not the hard stuff. It's not the boring stuff. Um, and, you, and you're probably you're seeing the, the highlight reel of somebody's life. And it's not the reality at all, but it puts immense pressure on people to feel that they need to go and emulate this or do this or that that's what that's what you know they need to be aiming for um and it's not it's not reality i think it's um i was going to ask you this about social media as well like you're obviously quite a big social media presence and and in terms of role models i think it's great because you can find some really amazing people out there to 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 follow and to to use as a role model but do you feel a pressure do you feel do you feel that pressure of people looking to you or kind of, you know, hanging on every post or every word you say when you're putting stuff out there? I mean, I, I'm firstly very flattered that if people are actually genuinely holding, you know, hanging on my every construction post, which is usually just me with a power drill. Um, but I think actually a friend of mine um, is an editor at the Adventure Medic, I'm Everett, who's also been to Rothera. We talked about this recently. Um, and it was about kind of how loud to shout on social media because, and, and I, the answer is, it's the short answer is yes, it's not a pressure, but I do feel, and I have an awareness of what I post online. And I think that I use my Instagram posts for a slightly more professional slant. And I have been increasingly doing that in the last four years. I use my stories as fun, silly things for so people know that I'm like a real human being who does normal stuff. Um, and again, like if you follow me on Instagram, like you'll know that kind of like the posts tend to have like, you know, like a relatively, you know, esoteric live, laugh, love, uh, you know, tagline to them. And, and the actual stories are like kind of actually quite fun. So I think that um, with social media, it's getting that balance right. It's making sure that you are using your voice and your platform to inspire, but also to ground. So, you know, we're talking about not having rose-tinted goggles. I have been very lucky in that, for the most part, people seem to appreciate the fact that I do tend to sometimes post about hard things, too. Um... Or, or talk about things that I'm finding difficult. I've never cried on camera. I'm not quite that bad. But, you know, I think that it's really important for those of us that are social media and, and there's, there's a few of us, um, to have an awareness of what you're posting, who is going to see it. Um, and I think especially as you get more senior or more well-known, you have a responsibility, you know, to be approachable, but also to retain professionalism. So, um, and that can be quite tricky. Uh, as it is on Expedition, it can be quite tricky in the social media sphere. So 
you know, I very much encourage people who meet me to send me a message on, on Instagram and, and I'm, I'm very happy to get messages on Instagram. Um, but I think kind of increasingly, yeah, there's an awareness about kind of, I hate to use this phrase, but yourself is a bit of a brand and that people who might want to employ you are looking at your social media and mine is open. So you can look at it, um, which is great because it's inspiring for people like me 10 years ago who didn't have anyone to look up to. And, and I'm really, I feel very, very humbled that people think that I'm in any way in that league, but I, I really hope that it does inspire people, but it's also real enough um, that people understand that, you know, expeditions are not just uh, mountains and rainbows. Yeah, totally. And I think the whole brand thing is, is something that I'm starting to pick up, uh, pick up, not for myself, but just to realize that people are using this as like a career kind of um, selling yourself, selling your skills, showcasing your experiences kind of platform. And that, you know, it is really becoming a way of networking. Um, and it's it, yeah, so so what people are putting out there is what they want you to see um, in a very sort of targeted and like specific way. So it, I, I think I, I've started going that way myself, but I am nowhere near on uh, Clara's Clara's level yet. But um, yeah, because it you know it may it may generate uh, it may generate jobs for you. It may generate networking that, that leads to in, employment and and that sort of thing. And we always, always want to be chasing the next adventure etc but people should be aware that that's what that's what we're putting out there sometimes that's what we're doing you know that's what we're doing we're we're, we're it's our professional it's our cv in pictures but the the i think they're kind of having you know enough of a personal side to it that you know you can make friends and you know because actually social media is supposed to be about making friends and i have made a lot of friends through instagram um, there's people I met at the World Extreme Medicine Conference who I only ever knew through social media. And um, we were thrilled to meet each other for the first time. It was super fun. Um, but I think, you know, again, kind of it's because if you use your stories to get people to get to know you as a, as a person and your posts, the lasting thing, the thing that doesn't, uh, uh, you know, disappear in 24 hours uh, can be more about, you know, for, for that employability side or for, oh, just for people to, to look back on and, you know, if, if they, if they want to be inspired through your posts or actually read them, like, that's really cool. Um, but I also think kind of like, yeah, I think you need to, it needs to have an awareness. There needs to be a balance. You need to have a bit of responsibility about what you put out there. Um, if you're going to put facts on there, please fact check it and include references. Um, and, you know, it's medical community has a responsibility to be, you know, open, honest and, uh, you know, correct, or as correct as we can be. So I think, yeah, for any of you that do put, and, I'm, and I'm, there's some, some amazing doctors putting some really good stuff online. Um, but yeah, please include your references because we want to go read it too. So something that we were maybe going to touch on a little bit later, but just kind of flows nicely here is, is that whole kind of role model. And maybe you didn't have anybody when you started getting into this 10 years ago to look up to. Um, but in particular, like women in the field, I don't think there were that many to to look up to when you first started getting into it. And I guess now you're in that you're in that position on the other side of things where I imagine you've got people asking you for advice. Yeah, and it is mostly it's mostly women. And um, I mean, I I'm really very 
I can't find the words quite, um, it's overwhelming slightly that people do think of you as a role model, but I'm I very much take it very seriously. I do get a lot of young women uh, asking me a lot of questions about expedition medicine because I, a lot of the time we do just see a sea of, of men. And I think that uh, one of these, this is quite poignant. I went to, uh, I'm not going to quite name the conference, but I went to one of the pre-hospital medicine conferences about six years ago. I was, I was just finishing medical school and it was one of the, it was one of the, the London Hems consultants, who's a, who's a woman. And she stood up and she said, raise your hand in the room if you're female. And I had three hands in the room. It was a packed lecture theater. And it's not that long ago. And it's changing. It's good. But still, you know, I've taught on courses where the faculty is mostly male. And I've actually had young younger women come up to me and say, you know, it was just really nice to see one of the instructors, you know, in full mountaineering garb or come in out with the weather, you know, like really, you know, looking the part uh, uh, next to the guys. And, you know, and that's, you know, sad that, that, that they don't have more of that, but it's a real privilege to be, to be that. And another thing that I think kind of women particularly tend to ask me about is, um, if you're, you know, if you're the only woman or if you're a woman on expedition, you know, what's your experience with sexism and, and, you know, gender inequality. And, you know, I, I'm lucky that I haven't had too much experience with that, but, you know, kind of some women do are worried about their safety. If they're one of the only women on expedition, they're worried about, um, I've had questions about, you know, sexual assault on expedition. Um, again, I don't know of any cases about it, but, you know, to the to the point where there are younger students and young women asking me if that's a, a thing they need to be concerned about. And, you know, you are in these really remote environments with people you kind of have to trust. And it is, it's good that it's now a, a conversation topic to bring up. But I think that kind of as more women get into it, the more we can support each other. And it's really important for the people who they look to, and I'm very glad that some people include me in that, to be vocal about, um, you know, it is hard being the only girl. You know, yes, I do make men talk about periods and they don't like it. You know, yes, I have had sexist comments whilst working for various organizations. I have felt objectified by, you know, men on an expedition. And no, I've never felt unsafe, ever. And I'm very lucky, but, it's not an experience I've had. So for all of you women listening out there, um, you can do it. You can do it so freaking well and you are going to kick ass, but you know, you're going to come up against a little bit more discrimination than you would in your normal life because that sphere is, it's changing, but it's still very male dominated and you're going to need to prove that you're twice, you know, twice what they are. But Actually, there was an expedition I did in Kyrgyzstan um, where culturally women are not, women don't shake hands with the men. And um, I was the only woman in the expedition group. And, you know, they all thought it was ridiculous that I was sharing a tent with a guy and everyone was, you know, he's a very good friend of mine, actually. But um, at the end of the expedition, along with, a couple, you know, three or four of my other male members of the group, I was the only woman to have summited all the three peaks that were in our goals. 
and you know, I was tired. It was, it, everything was really heavy, <laughs> but I, I'd kept up. And um, my Kyrgyz guide shook my hand at the end. And that was a huge deal. Um, and to the point where actually uh, they asked me about this in my Basmo interview and I told that story and it's because it is a big deal um, when you're recognized as an equal. Um, so yeah, girls, you can do it. Uh, you are awesome, but you know, you're going to encounter it at some point. And we are here to talk about it with you. Um, and if, you know, reach out to us and, and, you know, let us know your concerns. Tell us what you're worried about. We can help you out. Yeah, totally. Love that message. That will, power to the women. But also, I think um, a lot of a lot of it, I think I'm lucky as well in that I've never really experienced too much of it um, in, on expeditions I've been on. But I do think there's a lot of it in my own head with a little bit of a a little bit of a chip on my shoulder a little bit, I guess, in that I feel I have to overprove things because I'm maybe the only woman or because, you know, I feel I've got to, I've got to carry a bit more or I've got to make sure I'm not the slowest or it, those sort of things that go through your head. They're a little bit, a little bit silly, a little bit egotistical, but just feeling like, you know, I've got to hold my own in this group and I don't want them to think that I'm being weak because I'm a woman. Um... Yeah, you ever get those? Oh God, yeah. I've I've almost injured myself because I carried too much weight. Um, that was stupid. But you know, I think we do that in our normal lives anyway. But I think that in the expedition sphere, um, that insecurity that comes from sexism can hurt you. Um, so it it's still gonna be a thing. You're still gonna feel. You know, if you can't. If you're tired and if you're, you know, like they're tired too, of course, everyone gets tired, men, women, everyone gets tired, but you know, kind of you carry proportionally to you, you, you do proportionally to you. You don't need to do more. You don't need to be the most act outgoing member of the group. Like that's okay. And if people attribute that to you being girl, then, you know, you can tell them where to put it really. Um, and you need to tell yourself where to put it too, because it can hurt you. And and I think kind of that that mentality and that and that insecurity that comes from background sexism, um, and you looking at your someone's giving you the side eye and you're like, oh my god, is it because, is it because I didn't do like every single night cooking in the cook tent? It's like no, it's because like kind of behind you is a guy who you know farted in their tent last night and he's annoyed about it, or just because he's thinking about like kind of how dirty his socks are and you tend to be in the way of his stare. So, you know, I think that women particularly tend to make, we, we tend to make it more about us because sometimes it is about us, but you know, don't let that insecurity, that insecurity is going to be heightened on an expedition, especially if you're in a small group and especially if you're one of the only girls. Um, but again, kind of like, this is where stuff like reflection and journaling and, you know, having a, maybe having a couple people to talk to about this beforehand uh, does help because then you can realize that firstly, everyone feels that way. All the ladies feel that way. And then some of the guys, of course, men feel this way too, by the way, we're not, we're not being exclusionary. Um, but there's more of you than us. Um, so for the moment, we're going to talk about girls. Um, you know, it, it's going to happen to you. You're still going to do the stupid thing you shouldn't do just remember like kind of check yourself while you're doing it and go, you know, maybe I shouldn't carry like 90 kilos. I'll carry 70. I can do that. 
or maybe maybe I'll carry 90, but I'll do it in two trips. And that's fine. You're still doing the work. You're still doing the thing. You don't need to cook in the cook tent every night. That's not your job. It's, it's your job a little bit, but like, you know, you don't, you don't have to create creations every night. Like possible and five nights in Rome is fine. Um, and I think that it's up to us also just to not fall into those stereotyped roles as well and put ourselves there because sometimes women are their own worst enemy because we, we, we see it and, you know, kind of, we see it and we react to it because it, it can, you know, it hurts sometimes. So, yeah. I think sometimes you can flip that insecurity sometimes to your advantage though. If, if you are fit, if you, those thoughts are going through your head, like, oh, like mate, you know, I'm really tired here. Like I am really struggling, but I don't want to be the one that like, you know, shows it or voices it or anything like that. But actually, you know, like my experiences on Kilimanjaro, which I've talked about on a previous podcast, but you know, I was like, guys, like, look, I'm a human. This is hard. Like I'm struggling. Um, and that just creates an environment where everybody else feels like they can say they're struggling and that's okay. So yeah, yeah, we're all tired. Yeah, we're all really like, you know, hating this at points. Um, but it, it just takes that one person to, to start that conversation, to own up to it and say like, yeah, actually like this is really hard. Um, and so yeah, get, get, getting over sometimes your own insecurities about like, oh, break, like, yeah. Forget that. As yes, edit, you can. You've a... <laughs> yeah, you've got a special <laughs> position where you can actually model that insecurity and then people are, are going to be like, oh yeah, well, she, if she's the doctor and she's thinking that, like, yeah, like it's totally cool that I'm tired as well. Exactly. And yeah, I think that's very well put. Well, I, it's a way of flipping it, isn't it? And making it, making it a positive. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad we, we've spoken about that because it's a really important topic that... Yeah, there's not there's not that many of us around. There are more, um, and yeah, w sometimes you you got to get these things out there, make it known. I think um, let's let's pivot a little bit and then talk about um, your side hustles and your things outside medicine. Which maybe this transpired from Antarctica, and I know you did lots of bits and bobs around the base and things like that, but. Um, so Clara has already mentioned she's a landlord. Uh, she's also making her own hats. She's just obviously just bought a house in Inverness as well. Um, she's always got a little hustle on the side going on. And I would love to know where that comes from, where that kind of entrepreneurial spirit comes from and, uh, where you see it going for yourself in the future. So at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about how every hobby requires new kit and how kit is very fun to buy. And that is what has inspired my side hustles being making myself broke from outdoor kit. No, um, in all seriousness, I think it is, um, there are lots of things that make me really happy. Um, I have always enjoyed, you know, arts and crafts to varying extents. I've always enjoyed being outside. Um, I enjoy, and I and I've recently gotten more interested in um, kind of business and business mindsets and small businesses, partly because some of my friends are doing incredible, incredible startup businesses. Um, actually, one of the the people who it's a shameless shout out to the guys who actually stocked my medical kit for uh, Mongolia, the uh, Bradley um, at Mir. 
um, supplies. Uh, he's doing medical supplies. And he started that company during COVID by himself with his friend Kyle. They're both paramedics. And they're just they're just doing other stuff. And I just think that that's really cool. And I think it makes you a more multifaceted person and a more multifaceted doctor. I think, you know, I really got back into, uh, you know, terrible, by the way, terrible quality carpentry and making things with power tools uh, when I converted Ernie um, into a camper van from a shell. Um, but that's actually really kind of, uh, you know, kind of transpired into something I'm quite interested in and doing and maybe not monetizing, but I definitely have a shed full of stuff. I, I like, you know, doing things too. And, and I also, I think I, I learned to crochet in Antarctica. Um, I found that it was, it was, it distracted me enough. It focused me enough on a thing um, to kind of make my brain quiet, but it didn't take up too much room that I could hold a conversation whilst I was crocheting. So, or I could just be in the back of a room and just be doing something, you know, fidgeting. I, I fidget a lot. Um, and I think that, you know, having uh, having things that you do on the side, whether it's something that makes you money, whether it's something else that you enjoy, whether you're competitive in a sport, whether, you know, you secretly are, you know, Britain's answer to the tap god, gene, you know, tap dancing geniuses of the world, you know, having something on the side that isn't medicine is really important. And some of the most well-rounded doctors are the people who are, you know, are also secretly a GB triathlete. We don't all need to be triathletes or athletes. We can just make hats. But, you know, I think that having side hustle and, you know, having a mind for something outside medicine, you can bring those skills back into medicine and, and kind of, you know, I hate to reference a quality improvement project in a podcast about being wild and out there, but, um, you know, doing business stuff makes you go like, well, actually, like, like bringing it back to hospital transferable skills, like, well, actually that's a process we could totally do better on. And it makes you actually interested in it. Um, so I think bringing in other aspects of, of other people's jobs, other people's skills um, makes you a better doctor and, and, and also makes the, the boring side of medicine much more fun. I, I've had this thought previously about how we recruit medical students based on their ability to manage multiple hobbies and volunteer in their spare time and also get amazing grades. And then we put them into jobs where they have no weekends, no evenings, uh, no time. And they also, that means they don't have time for all those things that they used to enjoy and that were their coping mechanisms. And it's it's a complete recipe for burnout if you think about it. It's okay. We're going to recruit yeah, these people. Yeah, we destroy their creativity. Yeah, oh, we take we these amazing young people. Good. Yeah, we take these amazing young people and be like, yeah, you know how you used to really enjoy ballroom dancing, you know, kind of like competitive knitting and debating. Well, great, that's fantastic. Well done. Now bin them for for the rest of your life. And I think that that's, um, it's a real shame. I think it's actually why a lot of doctors are now going to kind of less than full time. And it's really, it's a pot. It's a, one of the positive things that's come out of COVID is people being like, actually, you know what? Service provision. Nope. Not for me. Like my time, but like the system is not helping us. Uh, so I'm gonna go 80% spend the other time, you know, kind of making tables and that's great. Yeah, actually, Clara showed me one of her tables that she's made just before we started recording the podcast, <laughs> and it is 
a work of art, you know, beautiful driftwood, <laughs> rounded edges, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, so sometimes it's knowing like when you need to take a step back and actually just, you know, that work-life balance gets a little bit out of kilter and you've got to make some choices in order to get it back in, back in balance sometimes. I think um, the next question I was going to ask you was about um, we've we've touched on it already about kind of like like a like a brand or selling yourself a little bit, selling your expertise, selling your skills, and it's not something that comes that easily or naturally to many medics or clinicians out there. But you find you kind of have to do a little bit in expedition medicine in order to get those jobs, and you're often working with companies who are you know not not clinical, not healthcare, they're not any NHS affiliate or whatever. And so they're, they're commercial, they're businesses. And like, this is very normal in their world, but in our world, it's not. Um, so I guess, how have you learned that? Um, and how have you developed that along the way? And any top tips? Um, I've had people who've done, done it before and, and made enough mistakes that they can tell me what to avoid. I think kind of, um, you know, people like Kyle and Brad, uh, really, really were interesting people to meet. They gave me a lot of really good advice. Um, they helped me with, you know, setting up the financial structure for, you know, my property management stuff. And I have, you know, I've, I've still messed up and that's fine. I think kind of um, my only top tip is, you know, kind of if you're going to do any kind of, um, you know, if you're going to attribute any kind of financial stuff to it, make sure that you know what you're doing beforehand. You know, maybe if you're going to, if you're going to start companies or if you're going to, to be a sole trader if you're going to do all that kind of stuff maybe just you know seek the account accountant's advice you know we can't do it all we're very smart we know we're very smart but they're specialists in counting money and they know about tax so i think the thing is i, I would say about any kind of business stuff is is consult those who know more than you and as with medicine uh recognize your limitations because like we're terrible business people we work for free after five like, come on, guys. If we were in the private sector, I'd be sending you a huge invoice about, like, kind of, well, I stayed late to deal with, like, Mrs. Miggins, who was really sick, so that'll be an extra X number of pounds. And I know some trusts do that, but let's be honest, who actually submits those forms? Because we feel really guilty. So, yeah, you're a terrible business person. Find advice. Seek a specialist. And um, be inspired by those of us around around you that, you know, have done, you know, kind of the more interesting businessy things. And I do not claim to be an expert. Like I know very little, but I'm learning. And I think that's the most important part. Yeah, great. Love that. That's a great top tip. Um, and so we're, we're going to like kind of start bringing it to a close. But first of all, we're going to talk about the very important man in your life, Ernie, um, and how, how that came about. Uh, and I, I'm just noticing that van life is everywhere. Everybody's doing up vans and staying in them and on the courses at WEM and things, lots of the faculty, lots of the students, everybody's bringing vans and sleeping in hospital car parks and all sorts of weird stuff. What is this all about? Well, so I bought Ernie, I bought, I, you know, a hipster in this respect. Oh, that, that's not even a word people use anymore. But um, I bought Ernie in 2019. Um, so 2018 even, uh, he was, he's a 1996 VW transporter for all of you van nerds out there. Yes, he is gorgeous. Yes, he has many miles on the clock and yes, he does make strange noises when you start him. He has a clutch. Uh, it's a, you know, yeah. Sorry, no, he has a, scrap that. He has a, oh God, what's it called? Oh, choke. That's the one. He has a choke. Oh. That's how old he is. Yeah. So, um, 
And the reason I bought Ernie was because I recognized that being mobile and being able to move around a lot is really important. My parents thought I was a complete and utter idiot. Now, fast forward, like, you know, several years later, the number of times my parents have praised Ernie because Ernie has saved my life because I've gotten too tired to drive and I've slept in a lay-by in my, you know, memory foam mattress of my van. Um, you know, they now think it's the best thing since sliced bread. But, you know, total plug it, you know, total shout out to van life people. I'm currently going to a wedding this weekend and I'm not buying a hotel. I'm just going to stay in my car. Um and I happen to have a little shower in there and it's all very nice and cozy. I'm a bridesmaid, like, you know, like there's an argument to say I should be staying in a hotel. But no, I'm, I'm going to park on the venue and I'm going to be there with, you know, with the sewing machine helping making alterations at the last minute. I'm going to be parked on site and, you know, kind of that's the full on, you know, duty side. And I think that the, the van and, and being mobile in your vehicle, whatever your vehicle may be, you know, it allows you to, you know, I have my swimming stuff always in the back. I've got a toolkit always in the back. The number of times someone said, does someone have a screwdriver? And I'm like, yes, what do you need to have for? Um, you know, I think that it, it has a huge amount of utility. Uh, when we went to, I went, we went skiing, we went to the doctor's updates conference in Val this year. And there became a phrase on the trip that was just Ernie will provide because everything that we could possibly think of when we're changing the settings in our skis needed a screwdriver. Someone, we ran out of coffee and Ernie had coffee. Ernie will provide your van becomes a, a place where, you know, you can store stuff. It becomes, you know, a little home to yourself. And it, it's just really it becomes a way of, of being able to be mobile. And especially with expedition medicine, or if you're locoming a lot, if you're trying out different jobs, different roles, you know, sleeping in that hospital car park is a lot more appetizing when you have a, a bed. And, or, or, or when you are doing a hospital night shift and you finish where you're doing a shift and you finish. And instead of staying in that really grim hospital par car park, you can drive to a beach and park there. And then you just feel better. So it enables you to access beautiful places, make them your home temporarily, and then roll your home somewhere else. And uh, it's a real, yeah. yeah home is way it's definitely, right? <laughs> oh, I hate that's so cliche, but it is. It really is where you park it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I will never forget there was this surgeon at a hospital I worked at who used to sleep in his van in the car park uh, because it was Wales and parking was free and that you know that's a thing over there and he used to walk into the hospital every morning with a bottle of pee didn't really stretch to the full chem toilet situation he was like yep here, here's my pee I'm just gonna go get rid of this in the toilet not gonna lie everyone's got a pee bottle just label oh, it. God. Don't get it confused with the you apple know juice, what? right? Uh, no, mine's got a big yellow piece of paper, you know, big piece of you know tape around it. But you know, ladies especially, no one wants to go find a bush in the middle of a layby at night. Get an algene, a wide mouth algene. Stand in the shower. Practice. It will improve your life. Wow, these are top tips. I never thought we were going to get out of this. Top top tips, practice in the shower, pee into that Nalgene, get your aim right, that's it. 
like the last thing i was going to ask you about was your upcoming trip to mongolia what's so tell us about that what are you doing out there i think it's a scientific trip is that right yeah so um uh we're going i'm going out with the scientific exploration society uh there's about 30 people on the expedition um uh, we were out in mongolia for 20 days uh, a lot of it is on horseback, um, so we're we're taking four by fours out to a point, and then our scientists are are conducting their research at various sites, and then we finish. We do the main bit of the expedition on horseback, um, and yes, I can ride. Just it's been a while, um, and it's it's mainly just kind of it's it's science from the seat of a saddle. Really, we've got base camps. We, we move every night. We're sleeping in yurts, um, and. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic, fantastic trip. I think I really enjoy working with scientists because you learn a lot and um, I won't, don't worry. I won't forget to pack my pee bottle. <laughs> and are you, uh, are you the medic on this trip? Or are you going as a, like a kind of participant helping out or what's the role? So I'm, I'm one of the doctors on the trip. There's another doctor who's a GP um, called Luke Brown. He works in Oxford. And we also have, um, we have a, in our midst, a retired general practitioner from the Highlands who's worked up in Shetland called uh, David Arathun. So we're actually, we're a wealth of medical information. Um, and we're also, we've also got some dentists traveling with us who are gonna do some community dentistry. So, um, uh, which is really great because I haven't seen my dentist in a while. So I kind of get a cheeky consultation. But I think, you know, in general, kind of is one of those wonderful trips that's giving back. Uh, it's working with a lot with the Mongolian University. Um, and, you know, as with a lot of these kind of trips, you know, it isn't paid, but, you know, that it seems a small price to pay for the, uh, the experience. However, I think that is something that um, we can touch on in different, different podcasts, but it's something that I'm sure we would all like to change at some point definitely needs looking at doesn't it we need to form a union or something but um what do you know what the science is you're going to be doing um off the top of my head no but i know that it involves a lot of botany um zoology uh, a bit of anthropology and we're looking at the um the native horse species of mongolia as well at the end so it's uh the ones that are very close to the kind of origin species for horses so uh, whilst we are riding their modern counterparts, we'll be looking at the kind of the original. And I'm not going to try and pronounce their name because I'll get it wrong. <laughs> well, super cool. That sounds really, really exciting. And hopefully we can like catch up with you about it when you're back. Um, I think we're hopefully going to get you on to do a mountain medicine webinar with us as well at some point. Um, uh, yeah, so I'd love to do that. And uh, yeah, and for the, for those of you interested in Mongolia, um, I will at some point get around to posting a couple blog posts um, about it, you know, about Kit, about what we're taking medically and personally, um, and then about what we do and what we're doing. And if you'd like to follow along on Instagram, um, it will be under the hashtag John Blashford Snell, who is the, our expedition leader. So uh, we won't have internet for a large part of, of the, the trip itself. Um, but that's where all the live updates will be through him and through his website. So stay tuned and enjoy. So at John Blashford Snell. No, ha ha so a hashtag, hashtag John Blashford Snell. 
uh, it will be on my post about Mongolia as well. So I'll put all the little, the, the things that you guys can follow, scientific exploration, SES Explore, at SES Explore, uh, is, who, is who we're going with. And um, yeah, John Blashford Snell is our expedition leader. Cool. Well, thank you so much for this chat. This was great fun. And hopefully the audience has is still with us. We haven't them or maybe they've like finished their commute to work now and they're sat in their car on the edge of their seat just waiting to go in and hopefully we've we've put some inspiration some motivation um out there and we look forward to talking to you again clara thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you very much Fionn. see you guys later thanks for listening to the episode please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.